Well, good morning again. I'm going to take a slightly different course this morning. Uh, I want to give somewhat of a testimony first, and then uh, we're going to cover the entire book of Jonah. So hopefully you have snacks in your purses or something. Uh, No, we're just going to skate over the the book of Jonah for a few things, and hopefully God will have a blessing for you. Um, I'd like to tell you how this text came into my mind. Recently, I ran into an old colleague from Xerox that I had known, and he, uh, I had left Xerox almost 20 years ago. I hadn't seen him, and I ran into him, and I went through the same conversation with him that I've gone through hundreds of times, it seems, since we've moved back here two years ago from Cape Cod. Um, the typical statement is, you moved here from Cape Cod. Um, and then they do one of these or something like that. You know, is there something a little crazy about you? Uh, in this case, the gentleman knew me well enough to know that we had been going to Cape Cod forever and that uh, it had a special place in our heart. And we held a dream in our hearts to someday live there and work in the church there. Uh, but I always tell them there are two fundamental reasons, two primary reasons that brought us back uh, to Rochester. Uh, one was the family. Most of you know that our son Jason and uh, his girls live here. And you also know something about his ex-wife and her uh, ill health. The second reason was this church that has existed for a while and has ha- always held a special place in our hearts. And the opportunity came for me to retire and come and serve here alongside of the other elders. And those are the primary things. And, of course, then people usually stop and they contemplate why in the world you'd still move to, you know, but whatever. And we come and we broke uh, with, I guess, the world's thought of what's good and what's not so hot. And we moved here two years ago. But our long-term plan was, in fact, to retire on Cape Cod and work in the, in the church there. And so needless to say, when... When the Lord began to work in our hearts and we began to sense that he was calling us to be here, we prayed a lot about this because it was an opposite direction than we had, than we had always thought we would go. And since arriving in, in almost two years ago, a month shy of two years ago, uh, the Lord, um, interestingly enough, we, have not, we don't think fulfilled our primary or our first objective of coming here fully. In fact, we really hadn't been needed that much, and it's a little interesting, uh, because sometimes we have a certain perspective on what the plan of God is, and, and maybe it's our plan or whatever, and things don't exactly work out. I'm mentioning to Eric after Sunday school, how, what a perfect alignment with gifts and capabilities and a ministry that God has called you to, and that's just, just amazing there in Tanzania. Um, but Sometimes, I don't know if you've gone through these kinds of things, I think you probably have, um, Glenn and Anne, uh, where you begin to question, is this God's providence or is this just my plan? Is this, you know, God moving me or is it me moving me uh, in, in a certain direction when things don't exactly fulfill or come out like you had envisioned that they would in the first place? So this testimony is really how God recently uh, cleared things up 
in my heart. In a confluence of things that happened recently and how they all happened in rapid order to lead me to a better understanding. So uh, most of you know that uh, back a couple of months ago, four out of six of the elders here went to a conference up in London, Ontario, Canada called the Fire Conference, which is the Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. And people continually think we're going to the fire department, uh, you, but, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. And um, the interesting thing about the fire conference is it's not like uh, big conferences together for the gospel or something where you're hearing uh, big name preachers and those kinds of things. But it's it's uh, member churches uh, that, you know, are given assignments. Certain men are asked to preach. But all the churches are asked to give a church report, and then there's prayer time uh, for those churches. So it's a very interesting uh, situation there. And I was listening to the church reports on the uh, second day we were there, and one uh, pastor stood up from Shreveport, Louisiana, and shared that he and his wife were doing fairly well um, and had been really learning a great deal about the grace of God since a year earlier, their 16-year-old son was taken in a car crash, instantly killed, and they lost their 16-year-old son. And that really impressed me because they were, in fact, saying uh, they, under, you know, they had a better understanding of why God did this, and they were trusting in God. And I can't imagine anything worse. I don't know about y'all, but I can't imagine losing a son of that quickly. So I was, I was meditating upon that through uh, the next hour or so in the day. And then another speaker was uh, in the midst of presenting or preaching from a passage in the gospel. And one of my hearing aid batteries quit. And uh, I don't know about y'all, but I don't have enough grace to just roll with things sometimes. Because I got angry and said, Lord, here I drove four hours. I come up here for this conference, and now I can't even hear the preacher. And uh, so... Uh, um, typical Al um, got a little anxious about this and so I fashioned a plan and I said well look I'll, I'll just uh, zip out after this session I'll run over I'll, I'll, I'll find a drugstore I'll buy a hearing aid battery I'll zip back I have to move fast but I'll be able to get back before, before the next session so this was acceptable my plan uh, was acceptable and um, I figured I'd execute that just fine so uh, I run up to the room, to the dorm room, grab my car keys, run down, jump in the car, and, and, and Judy was kind to me and allowed me to bring the nice car to the conference. And uh, I go to start it, and it's dead. Nothing. Dead. And, of course, uh, I'm staring at this ignition switch. I don't know why this is supposed to help, but I'm staring at this ignition switch, and I'm pressing this, and my head's kind of down on the steering wheel. Of course, instantly, I'm angry again, Right? Come on, we got a schedule here. We got to, you know, we got, we got, my plan is everything has to be executed perfectly. And uh, the car's dead. So um, I'm really upset about this. And I, I look up, and I almost felt like an Abrahamic experience, because as I look up two cars down, there's some guys there from the college, and they're jump-starting another person's car. So, of course, I felt guilty, and I confessed, and I said, I'm sorry, Lord, I really feel bad about this. Please forgive me. And the guys jumped, started my car, so I said, okay, I'll modify plan A and turn it into plan B, which means i got to go find a car battery and a hearing aid battery, and then I'll race back and be there for the session. So 
I'm in Canada. Now, this is critical. So um, I head out to find two stores. No problem. I have a little friend, um, digital person here in my pocket. She's my greatest assistant. I say, sorry, and nothing. Because I'm in Canada. I'm not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I'm in Canada. My phone doesn't work. I got no internet. I got no cell phone. I got nothing. In the, in the college confines, we had a, a hot spot, and I was able to communicate with the outside world. I got nothing. <clears throat> Anger again, right? I'm lost. I got, I, I got a, all this has to happen in rapid order. Uh, I can't shut the car off, because if I shut the car off, it won't start again. Have you ever had one of these? Anyways, um, So no sorry. So women understand this about men. If you have to stop and get out of the car and ask directions, this is a major issue in our lives. Um, you know, we don't like to consider ourselves as normal citizens or civilians. Uh, you know, we have all this technology. We shouldn't have to do this. I had to stop three times and ask somebody, do you know where I could buy a battery for a Volvo? And they did. So... Anyways, in the providence of God, my third stop, somebody knew what they were doing. They showed me a map. I was able to keep the car running because I could keep the car in sight. And I go off and I find the store. And uh, amazingly enough, I, I buy, negotiate, buy the battery. It's a lot of money up there. But I bought the battery, and I have to wait, of course, for them to get to put the battery in. And I'm looking around this huge store, and I find hearing aid batteries. In a car battery store. What's the possibility of that happening? But in Canada, there's a store called Canadian Tire, and away we go. And I'm rejoicing again. I go from anger to rejoicing again and saying, Thank you, Lord. This is, this is great in your wonderful providence. I've been able to find this car battery, hearing uh, aid battery. So I leave the store. I'm driving back to the conference. Of course, I'm looking at my watch thinking, I, I might be able to make it. I, I think I can make it for the next session. So, you know, hopefully it's not a big imposition. And, and, and I race into the campus, and I pull up to the parking lot that we parked in a day earlier, and the gate's down. The gate's down. How do I get into this parking lot? So, okay, I figure, all right, there must be a... So I drive around the front of this uh, store, but guess what? When I drove into the parking lot, there was a curve in the road and big stones on the edge of the curve. Of course, when I'm backing up, my, my, my aluminum, my nice little aluminum wheels on the, on, the, on the stone. Okay, so I, I'm angry again. So I go back and forth with this thing. So I scrape the, scrape the, uh, the wheel, and I go back to the front of the dorm, park the car, I can shut it off now, and I get out of the car, and just as I get out of the car, storm clouds come in and downpour. I'm, I mean, it really rained. It rained heavy. Scott can tell you, it was raining big time. I get the token, I go back, I park the car, I race back to the place where the preaching has already been going on. I sit down in the back of this area, and, of course, I'm soaked to the skin. My hair's parted in the middle, and I'm sweating because I've been running, and it's hot, and it's, you know, more than 100% humidity. And I'm sweating, and I sit down, and I sit in the chair. And just as I sit in the chair, a brother is speaking, and he's telling a painfully difficult story. I don't know the context of what he's talk talking about, 
But I can see by the atmosphere that people have been really impacted by what this, this brother is sharing. So as he finishes, I check my emails. Because I'm back in the hot spot again. I can get in touch with the outside world. I don't know about you, but it's like living on a small island when you can't communicate with the outside world. I check my emails, and there I saw a note from Jason. <clears throat> from Jason. And it's a forward from Carolina, his ex-wife, the mother of our grandkids, that her cancer and the initial reason for our coming has progressed, and she's now in stage four lung cancer. Um, so I read this, and I'm overwhelmed. I read this, and it sinks into my soul and pushes me down into my chair, and I have a sense of fear and awe. And I realize how petty and petulant I have been for the last three hours. How I've wasted so much energy on microscopic issues that I'm completely nonlinear in my response to what goes on in life. And I begin to shake as I'm consumed with the gravity of this news <clears throat> and how the Lord has confirmed our calling. And he has been graciously preparing me to believe that he is in this thing via a series of little things that have led us up to this point. The primary reason for our move is upon us. And just a short time ago, we were questioning God's purposes. And he has illustrated his great sovereignty in a series of little events so that I would be able to deal with the big ones. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm convicted big time, as I'm sure you would have been. I'm such a dull child, and God is amazing. So I sink into my chair, and I hear the moderator of fire saying, let's all stand and gather in small prayer groups and pray for this brother that's just poured out his heart about an re- amazing situation where he's been asked to leave his church. And let's pray for one another That sometimes the providence of God is inexplicable. So while I'm still in my emotional pool, I stagger to the closest group of people that are gathered to pray. Most of these people I have never seen before, or at least I hadn't remembered seeing before. And my mind is racing ahead, thinking about all of the implications of Carolina's news in our family. And I noticed that the man to my right is the same man that stood earlier in the day and said how the grace of God has filled him after he lost his 16-year-old son. Now, this, these little details that were organized by the Lord is, is classic of the way God deals with his people. Every single thing that happened to me in those three hours was ordained by God. Nothing happened by chance. Now I'm standing next to the brother who has lost his 16-year-old son some 13 months earlier. And he opens our prayer time. And he says, Lord, I want to praise you for your beautiful providence. Can you imagine the grace to be able to say that after you've lost your 16-year-old son? 
So at this point, as I'm sure you would be, I'm, I'm, I'm in full meltdown. I'm shaking, I'm weeping, and I'm blown away by the news of our granddaughter's mom, and sorry for my weak faith and my impatience and my anger and oh, so many things. And I'm amazed at the grace of God that he has given to this man who just a matter of a short time ago lost his son. When all this begins to sink in, several hours later, I realize that all of the events of this day were ordered by my Heavenly Father. Each element was a complete symphony. God is in control of all things, and, and He's able to create the greatest symphony that we've ever heard. And, and, and all of these events were such to me that I would learn to trust Him in the small things. So that when the big things come, I can deal with them. That I would know him and his marvelous grace more than I have. And gain a better understanding of God's providence in my family. Well, all of this, as I meditated on it, brought me to a remembrance of my friend Jonah. Um, I think he's my distant uncle. I can really identify with Jonah. I don't know if you can this morning. But kids, let's make eye contact here for just a second. Kids, what do you think of when you think of the book of Jonah? Anybody. You can yell. It's, I give you permission. What do you think of when you think of Jonah? Nobody has a clue. A fish. Anybody remember the big fish? A whale. Ha ha. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. The whale. There's obviously a great deal here in these four chapters. The reason I ask in the ECF connection that you read all four chapters is because I wanted you to meditate on this, on this wonderful Old Testament book. There is more gospel in this book than almost any other Old Testament book. Did you find the gospel when you read through the four chapters? It's not hard. This morning I want to focus on the little acts of providence which were intended to guide Jonah and to aid him in his understanding of God. We're going to fly at about 10,000 feet over Jonah, so we're just going to hit the tops of the mountains as we fly at that altitude and look at some of these key illustrations of God's intervention in Jonah's life. Because God is a God who intervenes. just want to tell you that. You should go like, what was that, Eric? Okay. This man, like many of us who have been Christians for a while, committed some major errors. He was so familiar with God that he assumed he can disobey Him without ramification. Some of us have grown so familiar with God that we think we know Him extensively. And there are times in our life where God will order providence to show us that we know very little about who He is. And do you remember the Narnia series where the young girls talking to the guy that's half man and half what? Uh, 
fun. And he says he's kind, but he's not safe. This is a mighty God we worship this morning. This is a, an awesome God we worship. Let's not use that word awesome in a trivial manner. You know, so many of us, we, use, we say, oh, that's awesome. God is awesome. Think about that. God is awesome. Jonah is so convinced that he knows better than God that he wishes to take the high road to protect God's character. Look at chapter 1. You know, this reminds me so much of Peter. And, 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 you know, we read in the Gospels in Matthew in chapter 16 where Jesus is revealing to the disciples that he's got to die. He's going to die an awful death. And remember, Peter intervenes and says, Never, Lord! It's like, I won't let it happen. And, of course, Jesus had a fairly stern rebuke for Peter. He said, Get behind me, Satan! Right? Don't think that you know what's best. Because you don't. In fact, Peter, you know, I, Peter's another guy that I, I uh, identify with. You know, open mouth and think later. And that's Peter. But Jonah was somewhat like this. And if you look at the third verse of the first chapter, Jonah rose up to flee to Tarsus from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarsus and paid the fare and went down into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. After receiving his marching orders to go to Nineveh, Jonah has a better idea. He's got an alternative plan, and he introduces this plan and executes it, and he's going to flee from the presence of God. It's never a good idea to try to flee from the presence of God if you're one of his. From this point hence, we'll see how God directs Jonah and redirects him through a series of providential compensation mechanisms. And I'd like to just look at six quick things. In verse 4, a great wind. In verse 7, a game. Lots. In verse 17, a great fish. In chapter 4, verse 6, a plant. In chapter 4, verse 7, a worm. In chapter 4, verse 8, a scorching east wind. God, as he did with Jonah, sometimes directs us with these marvelous providential intercession into our nice, calm little lives and intervenes, thankfully. And as I related my story, how God tuned my heart that day at the conference, and I remember Scott asked me, is there something wrong? And I said, I can't talk about it right now because I was so disconnected mentally and emotionally, I couldn't speak. But God sometimes breaks into our lives and intervenes to tune us up. Like a piano tuner goes to a badly out-of-tune piano and tweaks it so that it sounds better as part of his orchestra. So that when we play the symphony, we don't sound like we're totally out of tune. But notice first how Jonah's character becomes evident in these little things. When the Lord hurls this great wind, in verse 4, upon the sea, we see the first intervention. Now, I want to, I want to, boy, you know, every, every passage, every verse, you, there's a temptation to want to do a dive off the high board and go into it somewhat. And, 
exegete, but I just want to point out a little bit about what happens in this next verse because I want you to understand the situation. The sailors who are experienced and they know about this kind of stuff are in panic mode because this is a great wind that's been hurled upon the sea. The sailors themselves are scared to death. They're in panic mode. But Jonah, it says in verse 5b, Jonah was, <laughs> he was in the ship and he had gone below into the hold of the ship and lain down and fallen sound asleep. He wasn't just kind of surface sleeping. He was the kind of sleep that, you know, you really need to have to refresh your body. He was out like a light. He was asleep. And you say, how in the world can this be? And it is true that we can be at peace in the midst of a great storm because of our faith. In the context of what we're talking about here, I don't think that was Jonah's condition. I don't think he was at peace in the midst of this great storm. I think he was so out of touch with God and so out of tune that he was sleepwalking. He was completely unconscious to recognize the providence of God in his life. God's children at times can be this way. If you think about Peter's first epistle in the first uh, chapter of the first epistle of Peter, he talks about Christians, in order to survive, we need to be in touch with spiritual reality. He uses the word in the old King James, sober. And it doesn't mean that you're not a drinker. It means that you're in touch with spiritual reality. You're sensitive to God's leading. Have you as a Christian gone through periods of times where you just seem like you're completely unaware of God's dealing in your life? And you're sort of sleepwalking through, almost like a non-believer, even though I'm talking to believers this morning. Jonah was sleepwalking and he was out of touch with spiritual reality. There have been times I know in my life where God has had to increase the intensity of his interventions in order to get my intention. I don't know about your exact cop, uh, personality. Some personalities the Lord can just give a little whisper to and you're right back on course. Some personalities, like our dog, we have this little radio frequency collar and you know we put him on and we have this little controller and there's level one. And if, he, if you say, Buster, come, and he doesn't come, you can hit the little level one, and he, he goes, hello. But if you go to level nine, he goes, okay. This was like a level nine. And in my own life, God gave me a level nine in 1991. He almost killed me to get my attention. And there are times where God has to do this because he loves us. And that this is the case with our friend here. Our friend Jonah. Look at the second intervention in verse 7. So each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Now, I don't know if you believe in luck. I don't. I don't think there is any such thing. I think all things are ordered by God, even lots, a game. And these lots are cast by these men. And again, we see God using all things, even unbelieving men who worshipped false gods. And yet God led them to pick out Jonah. God can do anything. And he can use anyone. 
In verse 17, of course, the most notorious of all the verses in this book, God creates a third intervention. The Lord appointed a great fish. Uh, Living on Cape Cod, we had the opportunity at times to go to the beach and see herds of right whales as they returned. uh, For some reason, they they occasionally come back to the northeast and they were right off the coast. And they're, they're... They're monsters. They're huge. And it's easy to see how that size of a fish, they're not fish, actually, they're mammals, but let's not get technical, um, could take in a man. Now, some writers that I've studied would say that all this, this whole book is a satire about how unchristian or how un-godlike uh, uh, sometimes God's people can be. Um, and whether it's a satire or a didactic uh, or it's actual history, I want to say this, that I believe in a God who could do this. Do you? Do you believe in a supernatural God? Or do you have your Christianity down to nice, easily definable terms? I know. We're all sophisticated 21st century people. Uh, we're not going to swallow this idea, sorry, uh, of uh, a fish taking in Jonah as a transport mechanism. But that's what God did here. He ordained a fish. My God can direct donkeys to speak or stones to cry out if he so desires. Is that your God this morning? Now in chapter 2, we can tell by reading the language of Jonah's prayer that he's been walking with the Lord for a while. He prays really, really well. And I sincerely believe that he was sincere when he prayed this prayer. Just like I was when I was so angry about the dead battery and then God provides a ram-like in the thicket next to me and I said, forgive me, Lord, Thank you, Lord. And I rejoiced in the fact that there were college guys two cars down to jump start my car. And then minutes later, I was angry again because I didn't have Surrey. And then minutes later, I was thankful again because I found a store that sold car batteries and hearing aid batteries. Amazing. And I believe Jonah sincerely meant what he said in chapter 2. He was genuinely sorry. And then, of course, chapter 2 ends with this wonderful event of the Lord commanding the fish to vomit, and out comes Jonah. In chapter 3, we see here that Jonah finally goes about the Lord's business of proclaiming, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown to this wicked city, capital of Assyria. And um, these were wicked people. I, I, I honestly wonder if Jonah was thinking when he headed out to Tarshish that, Lord, you don't know how bad these people really are. They're really bad. This would be like being a missionary to ISIS. You know, the Islamic army. Uh, These were really wicked people. So in chapter 3, Jonah finally goes about his business. 
And it's interesting, and again, I'd love to do a dive into the 40-day thing. Have you thought about this for a second? When you were reading through these chapters, did you think about the 40-day thing? With the flood, with the temptation in the wilderness? It's an interesting uh, deviation. But this was a period where God wanted to display His mercy. This was a time that God wanted to display his mercy. And God's mercy is best displayed in the darkest of situations with folks like me that didn't deserve the kindness of God and grace. Maybe you were raised in the church and you don't know what it's like to be a sinner. Um, I was never constrained by that knowledge. So we see how God was merciful to Nineveh as we read through chapter 3 and we get into chapter 4. And isn't, doesn't, doesn't this strike you? When you look at chapter 4 and you look at verse 1, just eyeball that for a second if you have your Bible handy. You'd think that Jonah would be rejoicing. But Jonah is really ticked off. He's really ticked off. Jonah's righteous and he expected that God would be righteous. And a righteous God would never allow sin like this to go unpunished. At least that's the way he thought. So what does he say in chapter 4, verse 2? He prays to the Lord, please, Lord... Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarsus. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, therefore, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me, death is better for me than life. Uh. This is a desperate man. He's so upset about the grace of God that God has forgiven the Ninevites. A lot of them. 120,000 apparently. And God has forgiven them. And instead of rejoicing in God's grace, he's thinking, this is why I didn't want to go here because I knew you were going to be long-suffering. And I think these people deserve justice. Now admit it, there are times when we deal, when we think about our enemies, whether they be political, sometimes I, 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 I think it would be great if Harry Reid got some kind of a throat problem and he couldn't speak. Um, and yet we need to pray, like Reid did Wednesday night, that God would save our president and our vice president and the majority leader, etc., that God would work in their hearts and forgive them their sins and give them a new and fresh love for himself. But we don't. Uh, we don't think that way. And so God <laughs> breaks into this little pout period for the prophet. And he says in verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Who does this remind you of? Do you if you ever read much about Elijah... 
And Elijah, after he battles with the prophets of Baal, and he goes through all of that stuff for 400 prophets, and he calls, you know, they call down upon their God to burn up the sacrifice. Of course, nothing happens, so Elijah mocks him out, and then Elijah takes this, he prays to God, and of course, the sacrifice is consumed after they poured a ton of water on it. And then God, uh, God gives him the amazing strength to kill 400 prophets. And then what happens? He gets a threat from the queen and he runs away and he hides in a cave. And the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Remember that? What are you doing here? This is the same kind of thing. The Lord condescended to speak to, to this way out of tune prophet and says, do you have a reason to be angry here, Jonah? Look at Jonah's audacious response in verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city, sat east of it, and he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. I guess he was holding out hope that God would turn and smite them and that they would turn into a cinder like they deserved. So he, he goes and sits and he waits. Interesting. Very interesting. Do you see yourself in Jonah? Are there time, I'm talking to people that have been, you know, like Mike. You've been a Christian for 30 years. Aren't there times where we, we think like we know, we, we're more righteous than God? How can he forgive those people? Look what they've done. They're just awful people. So the Lord appoints a plant. And this is providential intervention. Number four, he appoints a plant and the plant grows over him and provides a shade from the heat of the day. And Jonah's response is, thank you, Lord. Extremely happy in verse six of chapter four. He's extremely happy about the plant. It's like he's like me when I found the hearing aid batteries on the shelf in the tire store. I was extremely happy only to be provoked again by the next little thing. That came along, whipsawing between happiness and anger. So Jonah's extremely happy. I'm sure he's grateful. I'm sure he says, thank you, Lord, for this plant, because it would be miserable without it. So God appoints a worm. Interesting. The fifth intervention. And of course, you know, you, the story's right in front of you. The worm comes, eats the plant, the plant's gone, the heat comes. And so then God turns on the heat even more. He takes the dial and goes from 6 to 10 on the heat scale. And it came about in providential mechanism number 6 that the sun came up and appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became fate. And begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better than life. And God asks again, Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? Well, here's Jonah. He's still audacious. In spite of spending three days in the belly of a whale. By the way, I hope you didn't miss the connection there. The three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. But he's so audacious in spite of God's interventions in his life that he says, I have good reason to be angry about the plan. You see, Christians can so easily major on the minor things, right? We get so hung up 
on the minor things. It's a plant, Jonah. It came up the night before, and it dies the next day. It's a plant. But you see, in this case, Jonah has gone like I did, nonlinear. You know, nonlinear means that there's a certain uh, stimulus, and there's an unrealistic, unnatural, unlinear response. The plant dies, Jonah wants to die, just like the plant. And then we see the Lord speaking to him again in chapter 4 and verse 10. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. And should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? I was thinking about the people in Tanzania and how they're still so caught up with witch doctors and those kinds of things. They don't know their right hand from their left. But it's almost easier to have pity and mercy on those folks than it is on the people that live next door to us. Because they're sophisticated, well-educated, they carry jobs, they have responsibilities, and yet, spiritually speaking, they don't know their right hand from their left. So God speaks. 120 people. 120,000 people. Well, let's draw a couple of applications. And again, I hope that by reading these four chapters, it stimulated you to do some of your own study and go back and read some of these things that point to Christ. But first thing I want to say is, you see how the sailors, men of various pagan faith, uh, were used of God. They came together eventually after they recognized the hand of God in this situation and it said that they all worshipped God. All these sailors that were hard-hearted, experienced men became disciples. He was able to turn the vilest of men to himself in a quick moment by raising up the storm on the sea. Our God is able to do that. Secondly, see how a wicked city like Nineveh all came to repentance as they heard about the man coming back from the dead. And, and listen, this is how God sometimes uses our own sin to accomplish his purposes, because he can use all things. So Jonah runs, he gets tossed overboard, he gets swallowed by the big fish, and then he gets vomited up on the beach. Now, that's not the original plan. God's plan was he would go in a ship to Nineveh. But he goes in a sort of circuitous route, taking another path. But God uses it. Now, I don't know if someone saw him. I mean, this has got to be quite a sight. Would you agree with me? A huge, like the right whale, monstrous fish, comes up, beaches itself, out comes Jonah. Now, do you know what happens in the digestive system? And I'm going a little gross here for a second, but just hang on. But he's been in the belly of a fish for three days. He was partially digested. 
And so out comes this guy who probably originally in the Middle Eastern sense was dark-skinned. And he comes out and he's pale white. And if someone saw this whole event, this would align itself perfectly with the Syrian folklore that someone was going to come back from the dead and speak to them about God. It's amazing. God uses the disobedience of Jonah to accomplish his purposes. And he goes and he starts preaching. And it takes him several days just to walk across the city. I don't know if he went on Main Street or Side Streets or what he did. But his sermon was certainly short. But it was set up. The Ninevites were set up by their understanding that at some point in the future, someone was going to come back from the dead and was going to proclaim to them God. And they immediately repent. It's amazing. God uses Jonah's own sin to accomplish his purposes. It reminds me a little bit of the Roman soldiers. And how when they crucified Christ, they followed through with the plan of God. Did they know that they were following through with the plan of God? No. But God is amazing. He uses all things in a concert or a symphony to accomplish his purposes. He's the God of all things. Thirdly, I want you to see how completely misaligned uh, Jonah's thinking was when he started this whole adventure. He's thinking, I will be righteous for God. I'm going to protect God's name. God probably doesn't understand how really wicked these people are. So (laughs) I'm going to Tarsis. I'm going to flee from the presence of God because he really doesn't want to do this. He's like Peter. He's advising God about what he should and should not do. It's amazing. But God takes pity on these people. Think about this for a second. I mean, in in essence, the the very fact that Jesus came and the gospel was extended beyond the nation of Israel, but to the Gentiles like most of us. I mean, we'd be sitting here in the church with Mike Carson, and that'd be it, I think. But we're Gentiles, and yet God miraculously applies the blood to our needs. See how God's great mercy is on display. Can you see the gospel in the book of Jonah? I hope you can. It's there. But we worship a God, as I said earlier, who intervenes in our lives. God breaks through our little calm existences to accomplish His purpose in our lives. And may we recognize that and may we worship God as a result. If God can forgive people who are as wicked as the Assyrians in this time, He can forgive you and He can forgive me. And may we never get to the point where we think we know God so well that we can advise Him about what He should and shouldn't be doing. Our great prophet arose, this great prophet arose from the dead, um, and our great prophet, Jesus, did also, arose from the dead and spoke to the people. May he speak to all of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this little book. I thank you so much that you do not leave us in our complacency, but that you work powerfully in our lives to break through the deadness 
to break through the spiritual slumber that many of us are in the middle of. And you call us back to yourself. We thank you for your mercy that's on display here this morning and for your great grace. And we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.
bless you all. You are dismissed.